Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The parenting philosophy in our culture used to be spare the rod, spoil the child. We honestly believed to raise healthy kids, we needed to use harsh corporal punishment. You know, and we kind of hopefully most of us have gotten over that with children. We know that, yeah, you don't spoil a child, you don't indulge them, you give them healthy boundaries, but it's from a place of, you know, love and encouragement. I want you to do well because I care about you. And that's actually much more effective. But for some reason, we haven't made that translation to ourselves. And we still think that harsh corporal punishment in terms of like verbal abuse and shame is going to help us. Hello and welcome to the Not Perfect Podcast. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, the founder of award-winning mindfulness app, Happy Not Perfect. And this show is about upgrading our mind, our energy and our understanding of how we can live life to our fullest potential. Over the next few weeks, I'm interviewing thought leaders, scientists, nutritionists, and experts to share tips and tricks for how we can shed the old and step into the new. I hope you join me on the journey. If you follow me on Instagram, you may have seen me post one of my favorite milks, Hemp and Oat Milk by Good Hemp. It is not only delicious, but I am obsessed in all honesty. It's not only delicious, but the health benefits of hemp are phenomenal and growing hemp is safe for the planet too. Currently, over a quarter of greenhouse emissions come from food, which is extremely worrying for obvious reasons. Good Hemp are on a mission to reverse this though, because they believe all food and drink should be fully sustainable. They like to say, sow and grow more hemp for the planet, eat and drink more hemp for you because they believe you shouldn't have to compromise on either taste or health. Down at Good Hemp's farm in Devon, they make a whole load of different products from hemp, including plant-based hemp milks, as I just mentioned, protein powders, oils, and CBD, which you can order straight from their website to your door. So do check out this incredible company that is supporting the planet and our health. Head to goodhemp.com. And as mentioned, their oat and hemp milk is extremely good, along with many other products. 
Today's guest is a huge inspiration of mine and her work has been incredibly influential for my work. I mention her throughout my book, so to have Kristen Neff on the show, it's a true honour. Kristen Neff has pioneered the field of self-compassion research for almost 20 years. She has developed training programmes and, of course, authored best-selling books such as Self-Compassion, The Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself. She has changed millions of lives through her research in proving that being kind to ourselves improves our health, relationships, and sets us up for a truly successful life. Her latest book is just brilliant, Fierce Self-Compassion, How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up, Claim Their Power, and Thrive. In today's interview, we are about to dive into her book, and unlock Kristen's learnings around the power behind self-compassion. And I know it sometimes can be the hardest thing to be kind to ourselves. We instead get caught up in our inner critic telling us all the things that we should be worried about, all the things that we think are wrong with us, and actually dialing down that voice and turning up the volume of compassionate thoughts is truly life-changing. It's a skill we can all learn, and Kristen shows us how. Let's dive in. What's a favorite quote you return to often and why? One of my favorite quotes is actually by a meditation teacher named uh, Rob Nairn, who said, the goal of practice is simply to be a compassionate mess. And I return to that quote almost every single day. And so the reason it's so important is because often we think our goals are to get it right or to improve or to, you know, deal with our anger issues or whatever it is we're dealing with. What happens with self-compassion practice is compassion itself actually becomes your goal. You're still a mess. You still make mistakes. I can tell you after 25 years of mindfulness and compassion practice, I'm still a mess. Maybe a little better, but not a lot. But um, I, I have learned to become a compassionate mess. That is an achievable goal. And it, it just makes all the difference in the world when you hold whatever arises for you with compassion. Then you've achieved your goal. A compassionate mess. I can so get on board with that. Yes. What's a life lesson you have been reminded of lately? For me, what's going on is uh, the end of the pandemic, right? And so I think that's for everyone, but I'm fully vaccinated now. And it just really reminded me that even though sometimes things seem like it would never end and things would never get back to normal again, again, if you accompany yourself through whatever journey you're going through, even if it's very difficult, um, eventually things change. All things are impermanent, including things that are really difficult. So just, you know, it's, it's really, that's really a nice one that even difficulty will pass. All things will pass. The good things will pass as well. So you can't pick and choose but all things change eventually. Yes, absolutely. How do you define happiness? <laughs> I'm going to feel like I'm repeating myself, but I really do define happiness as open-heartedness, right? So just to get a little little personal, so I'm single. Pandemic wasn't the best time for dating, but even, <laughs> even so, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm middle-aged, you know, that I don't know what's going to happen. And so I've really been focusing on making sure my happiness isn't contingent mm. on things like having a partner or 
really on having my life go the way I want it to go. And really, I mean, I've had to explicitly focus because these thoughts come up like, oh, wouldn't that be nice? And, you know, there your happiness goes out the window with the thought, wouldn't that be nice? And really just refocusing myself and saying, wait a second, what is it that really makes you happy, Kristen? Yeah, I want to feel loved. I want to feel special. I want to feel connected. So I need to give that to myself. I need to love myself. I need to value myself. My connection isn't with any one person or any one event. It's with all of life. It's with the universe. Mm -hmm. Again, there's real freedom there because your happiness isn't contingent on circumstances. It's available at any moment. That's so peaceful. And so many of us can relate to that personal story you've just shared about this pandemic and, you know, like this epidemic of loneliness. Yes. And, you know, your book is so human and so beautiful and has loads of exercises as well towards just what you said you know living life with this open heart and this compassionate way out of all the exercises when you're in those moments when you're like okay Kristen let's go back to you know like loving myself with an open heart even when you have those thoughts being like well have you considered what is the exercise that pulls you back into this open space so some of these exercises are ones that I've developed more laterally as I've been going through different um, experiences. My tried and true one is a practice we call soft and soothe allow, which is whenever you have intense emotional pain, you actually work with it in the body, you name it, you find it in your body, you comfort yourself, you soothe yourself, you put your hand there and you kind of love yourself through the pain and it helps. But in my last chapter, exercise on what do I yearn for? I literally just wrote that in my notes to ask you about this. Yeah, because that's a more recent exercise. I haven't published that anywhere. It's only available in the book at this point. And it's especially good with loneliness Mm. because you identify, well, what what is it that I'm yearning for? Mm. And again, usually is. I want someone to say, I love you. I care for you. I'm here for you. I'll never leave you. You're beautiful. You're special. All those things. We yearn to hear from someone else and actually practicing saying it to yourself. I have to admit, it feels a little weird at first. I mean, you try it out, it's like, yeah, that that feels fake. That feels phony. And it's not so much like believing it. It's not really positive thinking. It's what you're training your heart to remember that, you know, those feelings actually don't come from the outside. You might even be lucky enough to have someone on the outside who says that to you, but you don't really buy it. You know, it's like, oh, well, he says that because he's my husband or she says that because she's my mother or whatever. So it really is an inside job. And so practicing what is what is it that I yearn to hear, usually from another, and then practicing really trying, setting your intention to really feeling that for yourself, giving that to yourself, you know, that open hearted appreciation. Because in the moment we come out of the the moment we're born, right, it's not like we say, to the newborn babies, well, you got to go to college and get that degree and make a certain amount of money, and then you'll be worthy of love. You know, that that newborn baby is worthy of love and care and um, acceptance and respect the moment we're born. It's it's an intrinsic birthright of being a conscious human being. And so returning to that intrinsic birthright, you can do through practices like this. Why do you think we struggle with self-compassion as much as we do because I remember first meeting your work about five years ago and going like 
how on earth have I lived on this earth for this long and never been encouraged to like be kind to myself? Yeah, it is kind of shocking, isn't it? I hope that's starting to change, but we don't hear about it. I didn't grow up with it. I think even nowadays people don't grow up with it. I think there's actually two main reasons. One is cultural. So um, there's a lot of cultural messages, confusions with, oh, it means you're going to pity yourself or you're going to undermine your motivation or you're going to be weakened, um, all of which the research shows are completely false. You know, it makes you more motivated to achieve. It makes you less self-indulgent. It makes you less self-focused, right? It's, it's actually a very healthy way of being. It's almost like, the you know, the parenting philosophy in our culture used to be spare the rod, spoil the child. We honestly believed to raise healthy kids, we needed to use harsh corporal punishment, you know, and um, now the research shows, well, yeah, it'll get short-term compliance, but you're going to harm that child in the long run, mentally and emotionally, you know, they're going to be screwed up. They're not going to feel loved and valued. They, they might engage in unhealthy behaviors, you know, and we kind of, hopefully most of us, at least new parents have gotten over that with children. We know that, yeah, you don't spoil a child. You don't indulge them. You give them healthy boundaries, but it's from a place of you know, love and encouragement. I want you to do well because I care about you. And that's actually much more effective. But for some reason, we haven't made that translation to ourselves. And we still think that harsh corporal punishment in terms of like verbal abuse and shame is going to help us. But there's another thing that I think is important to know, because there's also a way in which it's natural. And this has to do with our physiology. When we feel threatened in some way, we naturally go into fight, flight, or freeze mode. Right. And so the system was designed for physical threats. But if we fail or make a mistake or we look in the mirror and we don't like what we see, we feel threatened. And kind of our instinct is to fight the problem, which is like fight ourselves with self-criticism. Maybe we'll whip ourselves into shape so we'll be safe or to flee in shame like from the perceived judgments of others. We like withdraw into shame when we think that'll make us safe or we freeze and we get stuck. You know, maybe if I just sit here and get stuck, the problem will go away. And that system doesn't come on for other people. Like when your best friend fails, you don't feel so personally threatened. So you don't necessarily you know, go into fight, flight, or freeze with your, with your friend. What you do go with your friend or your loved ones is the care system, which is the system that evolved more in social groups. So we care for our children or our people, our group members. We help them feel safe with love and affiliation and connection. It's a different physiological system. It's associated with like oxytocin and heart rate variability but it really evolved more to care for others. And so we're we're kind of doing a a life hack, you might say, with self-compassion. We're using the system that evolved to care for others and we're making a U-turn and using it for ourselves. But it's not as instinctual physiologically. So we have to like do some perspective taking and start to treat ourselves like we'd treat a friend. It takes a little longer. It's not, you know, it has to, you have to build that habit. You need to build that new neuronal connection, but it can be done. You've obviously spent the last 20 years researching the actual scientific implications of a more self-compassionate life. So before you dive into some of the stories in your book, what happens to the body and why actually should we be treating this like any other sort of physical health thing that we take ourselves to the gym, for example? So um, it really has a physiological effect because, of course, the mind and the body are connected. So when we beat ourselves up, when we criticize ourselves, when we activate the threat defense system, we release cortisol. 
And cortisol is implicated in a lot of health issues, for instance, high blood pressure, uh, heart issues eventually. And also what happens by when we activate our cortisol levels all the time in the sympathetic nervous system, the body kind of counterbalances by shutting down and maybe becoming depressed or else we're too activated and we become anxious. So, um, and this leads to physical health issues, right? So uh, for instance, it lowers immune function when we're activated all the time, we've got so much cortisol going on. So what self-compassion does is first of all, um, when we feel safer because we care for ourselves, um, our cortisol levels reduce. And again, we get more things like heart rate variability, which is associated with flexible responding to situations. Uh, our body is more relaxed and that means it improves immune function. So for instance, there's research showing that the more compassionate you are, the fewer like aches and pains and colds you get, you know, small health problems, because again, your body's functioning better. And then there's also things like you sleep better. And of course, more sleep is associated with physical health. And you also take care of yourself more. You're more likely to go to the doctor or to exercise or eat well, again, because you care. And that's also linked to better physical health. So they really are intertwined physical and mental health. So you named your new book, Fierce Self-Compassion. And I was fascinated because what is the difference between just self-compassion and fierce self-compassion? Why did you want to include that? So compassion in general is, you know, defined scientifically as concern with the alleviation of suffering. It's, it's actually a motivation as opposed to an emotion. And so self-compassion is just using this motivation with ourselves to alleviate our own suffering. And then what I started seeing over the years is there's actually kind of two sides of self-compassion and people are really only familiar with one. So there's what I call tender self-compassion. And this is the ability to just be with what is. So unconditional self-acceptance, for instance, is part of tender self-compassion, um, soothing ourselves, comforting ourselves. It might be like a parent with the child, that, that nurturing energy of soothing and comforting our childhood. You know, that child may be screaming its head off. We still love it unconditionally. And this is the real healing power of self-compassion and the thing that most people associate with self-compassion. But sometimes to alleviate our suffering, what we need is not self-acceptance. What we need is actually to do something, to take action. So for instance, protecting ourselves. If someone's harming us or threatening us or crossing our boundaries, Sometimes self-compassion means standing up, being strong, you know, being fierce, saying no as a way to alleviate your own suffering. And also, you know, the tendency to always say yes to other people and meet their needs. Women especially have this, right, because we're, we're valued when we always meet other people's needs. So part of self-compassion is saying, you know, I'm going to actually, I need to do something to meet my own needs too. Not that I'm more important, but I have to count myself. So it's saying no to others, yes to ourselves. And then finally, motivating change. Actually, the number one block to self-compassion is people really believe they're going to lose their motivation. They don't understand the fierce side of self-compassion. You know, sometimes we need to say, hey, this relationship isn't working for me or this behavior isn't working for me. I need to change something. I need to do something, not because I'm unacceptable as I am, but simply because, I, you know, this isn't healthy and I care for myself. And this is really the fierce side of self-compassion. So I like, I use the metaphor of if tender self-compassion is mother, you know, gently holding her child, fierce self-compassion is fierce mama bear, you know, and we know that energy and women, especially, but, you know, I think all people have that any parent, but even if you aren't a parent, that thing of standing up for someone you love, you know, it's also part of our nature. 
So it's tapping into that fierce mama bear energy for ourselves. And the reason I wrote the book for women in particular is because, I mean, we need both fierceness and tenderness. Too much tenderness without fierceness is complacency. Too much fierceness without tenderness is aggression. We need both. We need to balance and integrate them. But we've gendered these things. Mm. Men aren't allowed to be tender. And that harms men. You know, it decreases their emotional intelligence if they can't work productively with their emotions to help heal themselves. But women aren't allowed to be fierce. We don't like fierce women. We call them names. And that means it disempowers us. So all people, regardless of gender identity, need fierce and tender self-compassion. But I wrote the book for women just because the gender socialization works in a different way and it was too complicated to write. Well, from men's perspective and from women's perspective. So I write it for a woman, but everyone needs both. It's so interesting that point on nuance in the sense that kind of we often take these things to extreme. It's like, you know, self-compassion immediately we assume it's soft and it doesn't exist in boardrooms or where you need to get your kind of like fierce on. And then also we assume that when we're fierce, that's a place where self-compassion doesn't even exist either. And then as a consequence, like this fallacy of the girl boss is so hurtful for women because it doesn't kind of include in this archetype kindness and self-compassion within it. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's really damaging. If you look at the problems in the world today, it's because sometimes I like to use the metaphor. Um, another metaphor is yin and yang. And I like it because it's a little more gender neutral. Um, so yin is more of the soft, gentle energy of life. And yang is the forceful, active energy of life. From the perspective of Chinese philosophy, ill health is like defined by having these things out of balance. And so the world is like young energy run amok, <laughs> like, you know, exploit the environment, you know, exploit people, just, you know, do, 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 achieve, achieve, achieve mm-hmm. with no acceptance or no tenderness. And that's part of the problem. And so, for you know, and I consider myself a feminist. I, you know, obviously all people, anti-racist, feminists, all people deserve an equal chance, equal respect. But that doesn't mean we need to all have one model, which is a model which has been harmful which is just exploiting others, selfishness, you know, again, striving to the point of imbalance. What we, I think, all need to strive for is this sense of balance. We can have an open heart as we're really fierce. And so part of correcting this imbalance means sometimes you need to go left and sometimes you need to go right. But where we're all headed toward is a place of balance. And, you know, and I'm obviously not the first one to talk about this. Look at Martin Luther King or Gandhi or some of the great social justice leaders of the last uh, millennia. <laughs> you know, they talked about like nonviolent resistance, that this loving, you know, you stand strong, you say no very clearly. But you don't hate anyone because once you start hating, once you lose that tenderness, then you're just part of the problem. You're adding to the suffering. But you, you could even be angry. You could even be full of rage as long as it's aimed at injustice, as long as it's not personal, it's not like hating people, but saying, you know, I am not going to stand for injustice, racism, sexism, homophobia, whatever it is, that anger can actually be very powerful. It's an energy source that focuses us. It makes us brave. Um, Harnessed in the service of justice is actually, we want to use that power. I love how you've previously written in the past around if you ignore emotions, it's just that's just another form of resistance. Yes, exactly. And I'd love you to talk about kind of like the danger of just inverted commas positive thinking. So actually research shows that 
positive thinking can be helpful if you already have really high self-esteem. <laughs> but if you have low self-esteem and you do these positive affirmations, it may actually makes you feel worse because all it does is remind you, I don't believe this. I'm not like this. And it actually, this discrepancy is that much more obvious and it makes you feel worse. In a way, you might say that self-compassion, it is a positive emotion. Here's the thing. It's a positive emotion that embraces negative emotion. It says, this is here. I feel awful. I feel ashamed. You know, this hurts. And then it's kindness. So kindness is a positive emotion, but kindness can coexist with you know, all these really negative states. Um, whereas positive thinking is like, oh, that negative state doesn't exist. We actually, there's a, um, a paradox we talk about uh, in, in the Mindful Self-Compassion Program, which I developed with Chris Germer, which is um, we give ourselves compassion not to feel better, but because we feel bad. And it's, it's a little paradox. So, of course, in, in the long term, we want to feel better. We want to alleviate our suffering. But in the moment... If we use self-compassion or any other mindfulness, you know, loving kindness, any technique to try to make the pain go away in the moment that's here, then what we're doing is we're actually resisting the pain. We're pretending it's not there. We're, we're fighting it. And the research is very clear that when you resist pain, it actually exacerbates it. When you try to ignore something, it actually comes up stronger in awareness later on when you aren't looking. So really the only way through is through accepting it. This is here, this hurts, I feel shame, this is, you know, ouch, whatever it is. And you kind of embrace that. Wow, it's really hard to feel this. Ah, you know, or that's kind of, this is the yin. The yin is a, ah, the fierce might be, I believe in you, I'm here for you, we'll get through this. I'm here to support you. You've got, you know, I've got your back, that kind of powerful strength energy. And then eventually things change, but we have to remember, we don't have control. You know, we didn't choose our brains. We didn't choose our culture. You know, there's so mm. many things that affect us that we don't have control over. Um, we can try to do what we can, but the illusion of control itself is the cause of a lot of suffering. We think I should have been able to get that right. And somehow it's more comfortable to blame yourself for getting it wrong and keep the illusion of control that you could have gotten it right than to open to the fact that, you know, sometimes we try our hardest and we still don't get it right. And that's kind of reality. I love that, especially the control point, because I see it in people who are younger than me, older than me, but especially this like younger generation, this control of, and they're beating themselves up so much to try to control like how they want their future to be. Yes. Um, so, and I think social media uh, plays into this. There's not as much research as I I would like there to be yet on like social media and how this plays into self-compassion, for instance. But I think what happens is there's all these manipulated images and man manipulated life, and it gives this illusion of perfection, mm. which and people are comparing themselves to these illusions. You know, I, I have to say, I kind of feel sorry for the younger generation. I didn't have to deal with that when I was growing up or when I was reaching maturity. Yeah, no, completely. And this like ties into self-esteem, I guess, and self-compassion, but they are very different. And and how are they different? And how do we kind of get them confused? Yeah, so self-esteem is a, an evaluation or judgment of worth, right? You may judge that I'm a, I'm a good person or I'm a bad person, I'm worthy, I'm not worthy, or I'm somewhere in between. Um, and so self-esteem is usually, uh, first of all, it tends to be comparative, like 
we have to be special and above average to have high self-esteem. If I were to say, you know, Poppy, your podcast, yes, average, you'd probably be like, oh, you know, <laughs> you're to tell me, Kristen, your, your, your scientific work is average. I'd be like, oh, you know, self-esteem is predicated on being above average. Mm-hmm. which is a problem because by definition, we're all average. So what this means is we're always like comparing ourselves to others. You know, we want to slightly be better than others. We're trying to subtly put people's down. We know from research, one of the reasons kids start to bully others, and this continues in adulthood, is to boost their self-esteem. Mm-hmm. So they can feel like the cool person compared to the not uncool person, right? So the social comparison, it comes from You know, how do I compare to that other person? That's one thing. And it's also contingent on success, right? So self-esteem is a fair weather friend. It's there for you when you look the way you want to look or when you feel popular or you succeed, but it deserts you just when you need it most. And that's when you fail or you get rejected, right? Or you don't succeed. Um, You don't look the way you want to look. So self-compassion, it's also a source of worth, but it's not based on judgments or evaluations. It really is unconditional, right? It's the compassionate mess. I'm worthy just because I'm a flawed human being, which means you don't have to be better than anyone else. You know, you just have to be a flawed human being like everyone else. Um, You don't have to succeed. It's there for you when you fail, especially when you fail. You know, it's not contingent on how you look or whether or not people approve of you. So in my research, for instance, when you compare global self-esteem to um, straight levels of self-compassion, it's self-compassion that explains stability of self-worth. It's like a constant friend. You have it in the good times and the bad times where self-esteem can go up and down depending on, you know, what's happening in your life. So in your book, you are so honest. And I was particularly moved by your story going through your separation from your husband partner of the time just after you'd released this first book and that must have just been obviously you know really really hard on it like for a number of reasons but also maybe like doubly hard because you just you know being so public yeah well and I, I know I'm not alone I mean oftentimes we have these illusions about people and we think they're one way and then they turn out to be another uh and it's heartbreaking you know, and it's, again, I'm, I'm not, I know I'm not the only one where a relationship falls apart, you know, relationships fall apart for a lot of different reasons. But yeah, sometimes it's because we, we didn't see someone clearly. And also what I go into is, you know, I, it was partly my desire not to see clearly. And I think women in particular, so I'm just going to talk from a woman's perspective, partly because women are so socialized to need a relationship. You know, it's still, you look at these powerful celebrity women who are, you know, so much money and so much going for them. They still feel like they need a relationship. Hmm. You know, men, the pressure isn't quite the same on men. Men want a relationship, but they don't need it. Their value isn't tied up with having a relationship. And with women, it is. And this goes back generations. It's more than us personally. And so we, we like to see the best in people. You know, and sometimes it's, I talk about it as like um, the tenderness getting out of balance with the fierceness. Sometimes we don't notice clues. We don't notice the red flags, partly because we don't want to. And so we don't always see clearly. We want to be in this illusion of this person so amazing. They're so wonderful. And then eventually we usually find out the truth and see people's dark side. And it can be pretty devastating, you know. 
but the good thing about it is, I mean, I think, the, you know, as you can see that I went on and had other relationships after that and the, the same thing. It's like, I've been lucky in my career, not so lucky in love, you know, yet I'm still open. It, it may happen, but it's really, the good thing about it is really made me see, hey, I don't want my happiness to be contingent on something that's so fallible or something that's so, so you know, temporary that you, you don't, even when you think you have something, it's for some, again, for some people, it works out wonderful, more power to them. But more often than not, things don't last. There are, you know, people are human beings. They do have these shadow sides that get in the way. So do I really want my happiness to be dependent on that? Absolutely not, you know? And so it's really motivated me to do the work of finding that source of unconditional happiness, which really comes from connection, not with the person, but it's myself, but not the small self. It's the big self, more of a spiritual practice. When you realize that you're part of this much larger whole and that provides you with that sense of unconditional love and acceptance. On a daily basis, what are your practices that keep you reminding yourself that your source of happiness is from within? It really is a mindset. It's, it's not so much a destination. It's not, it's not like you achieve it and then you're there forever. And you're, you're perfect. And, you know, it's not like that. It really, again, going back to that compassionate mess, you, you fall off balance and you, and you give yourself compassion because you've fallen off balance and that recenters you. And again, that may be more fierceness, more tenderness, but it's, it's really this process is a way of being in the world as opposed to a destination. So some of the things I do, um, you know, it's funny, we do it naturally, but like touch, touch is such a powerful way to remind yourself of your own presence. And again, touch can be supportive. It can be strengthening. It can also be tender. So I'll put my hands on my heart, you know, and especially I'm, I'm very in tune with my body. This comes from the years of meditation practice. So like right now I'm feeling something in my midsection. I don't even know what it is, to be honest. There's some sort of emotional tension I'm carrying in my body. I don't even know what's causing it. There's no storyline attached. So I work with just the emotion. Okay, I'm holding something, you know, and I, I, I say things like may let go, what no, no longer serves me, may let go. I actually consciously try to practice letting go so that whatever I'm holding on to, even if I don't even know what it is, by setting your intention to let go by, you know, put your hands on your, on the part where you're holding the tension and giving yourself some love, it starts to dissipate. So that's the type of thing I do. I have to say my, my meditation practice, I, I used to sit on this cushion every morning. Now I meditate at night when I wake up, I usually wake up in the morning at three o'clock, whatever, that's my body clock. So now I tend to meditate in bed at night, which isn't, quite as effective, but it's still better than, you know, it's kind of doing what I can. So when I'll wake up um, and I'll just practice, again, being aware of bodily sensation, trying to drop out of my thoughts into my body, giving myself some compassion, some love, some acceptance, an opening to what is, practices like that. I haven't gotten much better at not being a mess, but I, I don't beat myself up anymore. That habit's pretty much gone. What would be more likely to happen is sometimes I'll forget to actively support myself. So I'll, I'll remember throughout the day, oh, Kristen, what you need is you need a little support and encouragement. So I'll say something to myself like, you know, I'm here for you, Kristen. It's going to be okay. You know, what do you need right now? Um, so I'll do things like that just as part of my day. So it's really just, I think, integrated 
into my way of, of being in the world with myself. Um, n- not always. Okay, I remember in the pandemic, you know, sometimes I would, I would be so like, okay, what do I need? And I got to go to the grocery store and I got to get my mask and I got to try to get my son vaccinated and all that stuff. And then I'd have to remind myself, wait a second, this is hard right now. You know, what do you need? How can I care for myself in the moment? And that's not only self-care. It's a lot of it's emotional self-care. We need understanding. We need patience. We need forgiveness. We need support. We need encouragement. So I think all those ways, it's really a way of being. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's so lovely. So before we started recording, we were talking about some research you did when you were living in London. And I was like, okay, we've got to stop talking. So I have to talk about it now because I know I do have a lot of British listeners. And uh, for any other nationality listening, this is really interesting. Um, So I would love to hear about this research and your findings. Yeah, so it's actually not research I did when I was in London, but I, I, I lived in London, oh gosh, it was almost 20 years ago, So I, and I know a lot of British people, so I know the culture, so to explain the findings. So the findings are actually more recent, where I was comparing self-compassion levels um, at 14 different cultures, and we just compared mean levels of self-compassion across cultures. And what I found was that the UK was near the, I think it was the second from the bottom or may have been the bottom. I have to look at the paper. Um, you can find it on my website. You can find all my research on my website, selfcompassion.org. But it was like right at the bottom. America was not that high. It was like in the middle. But the UK was one of the lowest countries we looked at in terms of mean self-compassion levels. And it fits with my experience of the culture in that, that stiff upper lip culture, which is useful in some ways. I mean, it's, there is time to have a stiff upper, stiff upper lip and it can get you through hard times. But if it's not balanced with being able to acknowledge and validate, actually, this is really hard. What do I need right now to get through it? It can actually start undermining you. You know, people think it's a strength. It can be a strength temporarily if you compartmentalize your feelings. You know, if you've got to get through a war or something like, you know, if you're in the emergency room and you need to like perform an operation. Yeah, now is that, that's the time when you need that stiff upper lip. You just need to get through it. But if you never say, okay, I need to process the trauma I'm feeling or the difficulty I'm feeling, then it's going to end up undermining you. It's going to lead to things like anxiety or depression or interfere with your sleep or again, your immune system functioning. So being able to say, I also need to meet my emotional needs. I need to acknowledge and validate my difficulty, my difficult feelings, I need to help myself. And again, remember, it's not always just tenderness. Sometimes it's tenderness, sometimes maybe you need fierceness. Maybe you need to stand up to the culture at your hospital and say, we need to change, I need to change the working conditions, your working is too hard. Or, Or maybe it's something like forgiving yourself for being human and not being superhuman, whatever it is you need. But if you don't ask the question, if you're too stiff upper lip, it's gonna actually undermine you in the long run. And I think this is such a important point in terms of like if the UK was like near the bottom of the list out of all yeah. these different nations, you can see how contagious it is. So that's why everyone like listening, I think we all have like a duty and responsibility to be self-compassionate to then give others permission to also be. Yes, there's actually a research paper called uh, Self-Compassion is Contagious. So what they found is if you, if you model it out loud, if you break a glass or something like that, you can say, oh, I'm such an idiot. 
And we partly do that because we don't want other people to think we're an idiot. So we say, oh, I'm such an idiot, hoping to avoid their judgment. But what you're actually doing is you're modeling self-criticism. You're modeling, mm-hmm. oh, the good thing to do when you break a glass is to say you're an idiot. But if you say something like, oh, oh man, I love that glass. Oh, well, it's only human. You know, it's not that big a deal. I'll clean it up. If you model compassion and understanding and the fact that this is part of human, you're being human, you're actually modeling that for other people. So what you say out loud, especially with your kids, mm-hmm. uh, makes a difference. We're always affecting each other. What we, what we cultivate inside affects other people just as what they're displaying affects us. Some people think self-compassion is selfish. It is the polar opposite because the more we cultivate compassion inside, the more people can like resonate with our compassionate presence that helps them. And also the more resources we have to give to others. So it's not selfish in any way. So incredible. My last question, who would you say are the three people that have, and their wisdom that they've shared with you have, truly kind of changed your life there's like three aha moments where it's potentially changed a decision you made or your thoughts on something or the way that your life has unfolded well I mean certainly just to give credit in terms of where I learned about self-compassion the first place I learned about self-compassion was uh, a meditation group that taught in the tradition of Thich Nhat Hanh and the woman, she was actually one of the main teachers of Thich Nhat Hanh's um, teachings in the United States. When she talked about self-compassion, it was a really low time in my life. I, you know, feeling a lot of stress and a lot of insecurity. And she talked about the importance of self. Her, her name was Therese Arnold. It just came to me, Therese Arnold, who was a teacher in the tradition of Thich Nhat Hanh. And she talked about self-compassion. And I had such a big light bulb moment. It was like, you mean I can actually be nice to myself? I can actually actively support and be kind to myself. And I tried it. And way before I learned mindfulness meditation, which took a little more skill, it was like, I just tried being a good friend to myself. And it just radically changed my life for the better in that moment. So absolutely her. And then of course, TikTok Ham, who was her teacher. So it goes to them. And then, you know, teachers like um, Sharon Salzberg or, or Tara Brock, just amazingly wise loving teachers in, um, you know, both in the insight meditation tradition that talk about self-compassion have had such a huge impact on me, you know, and then, and then people, I'm, I'm lucky to have very good friends, like my best friend, Kelly Rainwater, you know, I'm very lucky to have one of those lifelong friends who's just really just been there with that type of unconditional support and love and um, she actually is the one who helped me leave my husband after I found out everything that happened. She, she actually gave me a piece of iron. It was an iron spike to carry in my purse to symbolize strength. I needed to be like iron. I needed to be as strong as iron to get through this. And so things like gifts like that, mm. you know, it's just, just amazing. I've had so many people in my life, including my son, who's, you know, I write so much about my son in my book because he's really been my greatest teacher. He's He's autistic, but he is just the source of love and light in the world. Every single day he wakes up. Good morning, mom. She's so happy. He's such a source of joy. He's like sunshine, you know, sunshine, but he really is. Um, so there, there's too many to count. I can't, I can't narrow it down to three. Thank you so much for sharing 
the ones that you did because I think that speaks so much to all of your work and kind of inner compassion out of compassion and everything so thank you so much your book is absolutely incredible I will be putting it in the show notes but where is the best place to find you online for you know to follow your work and learn more about it Right. So if you just uh, go to selfcompassion.org, Google self-compassion, you'll find me. I'll, I got in early, so all the algorithms <laughs> go to me. Um, and so and also I've, I've just created a page on fear, self-compassion in particular. Um, but my, my, my website, I've made it um, a good starting place. There are free meditations, practices. You can go to the research. You can take a self-compassion test to see if this is something you might want to develop. And um, there's a lot of free resources on that page. Well, I'll also put those in the show notes for easy, easy location. Thank you so much, Kristen. Have such a great rest of your day. And uh, I'm so excited for people to get this book. Wonderful. Thank you, Poppy. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. It would be a huge support if you wouldn't mind rating, subscribing and sharing this podcast. I also would love to hear from you. So please find me at Poppy Jamie on Instagram, DM me and I would love to hear your thoughts on any of the topics that we discuss. Download Happy Not Perfect, my app that's designed to boost your mood and help you sleep and give you mindfulness in less than five minutes. It's packed full of science-backed tools and rituals to give your mind the care it needs. Sending lots of love and energy. See you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.